When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. The Soundtrack Show will begin in 5, 4, 3. And now, part 4 of Superman the Movie. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this is our fourth and final episode on Superman the Movie. A movie from 1978 from Warner Brothers Pictures, directed by Richard Donner, with a film score by John Williams. Over the last three episodes, we shared behind-the-scenes stories as we analyzed some of Superman's main leitmotifs, and starting with the last episode, we began moving through the movie from beginning to end and looking at some of the greater musical moments. Picking up where we left off, we find ourselves in Metropolis, nearing the hour mark of the movie, and in a way, we instinctively feel that a new movie is beginning. The tone has changed. It's both documentary realism with its non-musical scenes at the Daily Planet and on the streets of New York City, doubling for Metropolis, and it slowly starts to reveal itself as a feel-good comic book adventure, first with the attempted mugging in the alley, and shortly after, the introduction to our Earth villains, Lex Luthor and his crew, Otis and Miss Tessmacher. We first see Otis as he's crossing the street wearing a jaunty hat, and we're treated to chucking strings, playing comedic dissonance a second interval apart, and a melody that presents itself not so seriously on the tuba. Who is this guy? Well, he's being followed by Metropolis PD detectives, who give us some exposition, telling us that this doofus will lead us to Lex Luthor. We watch Otis enter a train station and try and steal from a blind vendor. Hey, what are you read? Hey, Matt. Hey, hey, Otis. Just getting Daily Planet here. Hey, what are you read? Okay, okay. This is classic vaudeville shtick. We get it. He's a petty crook. But you know, even though this music doesn't take itself seriously, 
The tuba and the dissonant strings are dead Williams giveaways. We're actually about to witness a gruesome murder of a police detective. As Otis makes his way into Luthor's secret underground penthouse, we see Lex Luthor use his machinery to push the police detective in pursuit into an oncoming subway train. This scene is a perfect example of music playing against type, playing against the drama that's actually taking place on screen. Harry, where are you? Harry. Music in film has the power to heighten or diminish certain dramatic effect. Had this music been played for scares, Luthor would seem absolutely diabolical. But as it is, it's almost camp. And we end up finding Gene Hackman almost downright charismatic and likable as a result. The following scene plays without music, as we learn of Luthor's plan to use two nuclear missiles to do something with real estate. But most likely, as this movie was released firmly in the Cold War, people are going to die as a result, whatever the details may be. But even this doesn't phase us too much, as we're pretty sure that Luthor will be brought to justice by the Man of Steel eventually, due in no small part to the music presenting this crew as a non-threat. You know, just to drive the point home, it seems that all people in Metropolis are concerned with or are peddling in some form of human misery. For example, right after this scene, we cut back to the Daily Planet, and there's no music, but there's Clark Kent working away across from Lois Lane, who's working on some sex scandal story. There's no Z in Brazier. Ah, oh, sex maniac profile. Right, look, 95 is a Pulitzer Prize winner. What do you bet? There's no Z in Brazier. Hey, nice job on this union scandal, Kent. Oh, gosh, thanks, Mr. White. And if you remember, she was working on some serial rapist story in the previous Daily Planet scene. So, yeah, we're surrounded by crime and misery. Lex Luthor, how does he even cut through all that noise? Boy, does Earth need Kal-El's help. But, apparently, Earth does not need Kal-El's dinner. Lois Lane says to Clark Kent, I'm sorry, I can't accept your invitation to dinner. And instead, she heads up to the helipad on the rooftop to cover the landing of Air Force One via a helicopter ride to the airport. Now, at this point in the movie, it's actually been a while since we've had any music at all, not since Otis's arrival on screen and the murder that followed in the subway. But what we're about to experience is the heroic feel-good Superman montage that we have been waiting for. Not just for the past few minutes without music, but since the beginning of the movie. We're an hour into this movie at this point, going by the theatrical release. And now, now, finally, we're going to get a heroic payoff. Our filmmakers are about to make good on their promise in the opening credits, as this, my friends, is Superman's debut on planet Earth. As Lois Lane's helicopter tries to leave the landing pad, it gets caught. Dramatic music plays to underscore the danger. Kent sees it happening outside. He immediately looks for a phone booth, as classic Superman would, and finds a modern phone booth that doesn't have a door. Whoops. Okay, so he improvises and opts for a revolving hotel door. Crossing the street towards it, he reveals an S bursting out of his suit. 
and the score bursts out with the Superman fanfare. Oh, this is going to be good. Williams is telling us so. And sure enough, Superman flies up to save Lois, and the television cameras, who arrived at the site of the dangling helicopter, are there to capture Superman's debut. Superman effortlessly catches Lois Lane. Easy, miss. I've got you. You, you've got me? Who's got you? <laughs> I, I can't believe it. I just, I just cannot believe it. He got her. But wait, the helicopter starts to fall on them. Incredibly, Superman flies directly toward it and catches it with one hand. Just to make the public's collective jaws drop to the floor a second time. As he does this, we finally get the Superman March. That's right, the one from the opening credits. There it is in all its glory, stated for the first time since the opening credits. We've heard the fanfare many times, but this March melody is saved for the most special of occasions. Williams has saved it for this moment. Superman returns the damaged helicopter and the speechless Lois Lane safely to the helipad. As he does, William ends the glorious march on the high fifth on a high note. Just ending on the ta-ta-ta! Not really giving us a satisfying ba 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 bum why didn't he give us that at the end? Why not put a button on this scene with a big final full orchestra note on the tonic? Because this isn't the end of Superman's debut. Oh no. By leaving the theme up on a high note like that, we are subconsciously lured into a feeling of forward momentum. We're in the middle of the movement in this symphony. We're not at the end. Indeed, that's what the movie then delivers, as this is just the beginning of Superman becoming Superman for the world in this glorious comic book montage. After the march ends, open-ended as we discussed, we have a nice moment where we hear the love theme again. Gentlemen, this man needs help. Well, I certainly hope this little incident hasn't put you off flying, miss. Statistically speaking, of course, it's still the safest way to travel. Right. Wait! Who are you? A friend. Bye! As Lois Lane is just floored by what happened, literally moments later, as the music Mickey Mouse is her faint, a chance for all of us to catch our breath before we see Superman flying again. And when he does, we're treated to a glorious special effects shot, as actor Christopher Reeve magnificently sells the effect of flying, even in a barrel roll. And what music do we hear? 
the fanfare. In fact, we're going to hear that fanfare quite a few times over the next several minutes, and throughout the rest of the movie. After this glorious fanfare, we cut to a jewel thief scaling the side of a building with suction cups on his hands and knees. Quite a comical contrast from flying so heroically. And Williams plays up this comedy with pizzicato strings and minor chord low woodwinds. Good goofy fun. I mean, the music is telling us what is this petty thief even thinking? In a surprise reveal, he steps on Superman's foot, who is defying gravity by standing sideways to catch him. And what do we hear? The Superman fanfare again. Hi there. Nothing wrong with the elevator? Later, as robbers are speeding away from cops only to escape on a speedboat, we hear Williams' action music play throughout the scene, with textures reminiscent of those featured in the end battle from Star Wars A New Hope just the year before. But that's not the important part here. What is important is that when Superman appears on the bow of the boat to confront the robbers, what do we hear? You guessed it, the fanfare again. Later, Superman is flying around looking for more people in need of help, and we're treated to a rare appearance of the softer B melody of the march, signaling the scene that's about to arrive. Can you come down from there? Hi, I'll get him. Superman saves a cat out of a tree for a little girl. Here you go, miss. Gee, thanks, mister. Even in this scene, the fanfare is audible. It always signals when Superman is going to do something great. Bye. Bye. And in this montage, already we're four for four. It signaled the top of the helicopter sequence. It signaled catching the jewel thief on the building. It signaled catching the robbers on the boat, and it signaled the pending rescue of Frisky the tree-climbing cat. But moving on. Superman is so pure that he shows, even on his first night in action, that he is everyone's hero. He can save kittens in trees, and can immediately turn around and save presidents flying on Air Force One. Metropolis Airport, this is Air Force One. We have the latest weather report. As he rescues Air Force One during a horrible thunderstorm, we're treated yet again to an almost theme and variation version of the fanfare. Southwest Metropolis Airport, heading 305, height 6,000 feet. We're now five for five on the fanfare's appearance before each of Superman's good deeds. And finally here, in the last set piece of this montage, we hear a lighter version of the march played as underscore. What the hell's going on out there? Fly. Don't look, just fly. We got something. I ain't saying what it is. Just trust me. While the pilots discuss what they may or may not be seeing holding up one of their portside engines. So what's the takeaway here? Well, First of all, what a rousing, feel-good sequence that is. The music really delivers, and boy, have we earned this. 
This is what got us to buy the movie tickets in the first place. This is what we wanted to see, contextualized over the last hour, up on the big screen, with modern visual effects and storytelling sensibilities. And John Williams is really shining here, supporting this payoff in an unbelievably satisfying way. But the real thing to take away here is, I think, that we hear the march in all of its glory only once, with the helicopter. A perfect spot for it, certainly. And then again, very subtly, at the end of the montage, we get it lightly as underscore, so barely twice. We hear it really like one and a half times. Meanwhile, we get the fanfare, a whopping five times, stated boldly throughout this montage. Why is that? I would offer an explanation that the reason is purely technical. As we covered in the first episode, Williams recognized a need for a thematic preparation for Superman as he was writing these main themes. And therefore, this simple fanfare emerged. And this montage that we just talked about is a perfect study as to why Williams needed it. As glorious as the March melody is, and this is the real point here, as glorious as the March melody is with all of its feel-good Americana, it takes a full eight bars of time to express it. Da 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 and certainly, the opening credit sequence, where we first heard the march, had more than enough movie real estate for Williams to develop it multiple times. But throughout the movie, it's most likely too rich, too emotional, and too long to work in many of the cases, like these five that Williams was presented when seeing the rough cut that he started composing to. I've said this in previous episodes of the soundtrack show, but melodies take feet and frames of film to express. They require a movie's time. And yes, by the way, even in the digital age, the film industry still looks at feet and frames as a measure of scene length, which I get a historical kick out of. But the point is that the fanfare has a technical advantage by design. Composed to announce Superman quickly and unmistakably, you can do it with the full melody, that's four bars, so that's half the length of the march. Or just the open fifths. That's just two bars. Or even just the first three notes. That's one bar. Or even just half a bar. All of those work. Or you could do any combo of the above. That makes this melody a perfect tool in a film composer's arsenal. Just like Danny Elfman's brief and very effective Batman theme a decade later, John Williams' Superman fanfare is an effective and essential insert motif that brings all of the other Superman themes together. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. It's worth mentioning, by the way, that the extended three-hour cut of Superman features a scene where Superman, as Kal-El, goes back to the Fortress of Solitude after this whole montage. 
and has a conversation with his father about the evening's exploits as a superhero, confessing that it felt good for his ego. And Jarrell wisely counsels him to keep his alter ego Clark Kent so that he can keep a low profile. Jarrell also expresses his love for his son. It's a great scene. So because of that scene, we know that that montage really was an emotional high for our Man of Steel as well as for the audience. That's just a neat detail. But I won't play it in this episode just because we're short for time and also because the music in that scene is just a reuse of Jarrell's goodbye speech from Krypton at the top of the movie. I actually like that it was cut because it keeps us completely in the comic book world of Metropolis without going off to the Fortress of Solitude and back. Moving on in the movie, a couple fun things to note. Williams recorded diegetic Hawaiian music for Luthor's Lair and piano music for deleted scenes when Lex Luthor is playing the piano for Miss Tessmacher. But most importantly, we next arrive at one of the movie's most important scenes, the date with Lois Lane. Starting as an interview on her balcony, we hear the love theme repeatedly as underscore. point is clear. These two really like each other. For time, I won't play the whole flying scene, as we covered the love theme extensively in the second episode, but it is as musically driven as any video that would debut on MTV for the first time just a few short years later. We should discuss, however, the moment after the date, when Clark Kent shows up at Miss Lane's door. Kal-El, Superman, almost makes the decision to tell Lois who he really is, right then and there. And we hear what Mike Mattesino describes as a personal motif for Superman. It's a combination of the fanfare and a bit of that Smallville Americana, while having its own melodic identity. After he makes the decision to maintain his Clark Kent identity, and by the way, I have to give a shout out to Christopher Reeve's masterful posture transformation as he lets Kent melt away for Kal-El and then Kal-El retreat back into Kent. It's not just the glasses. Anyway, after he decides to keep playing the part of Clark Kent, the theme morphs into a gentle version of the love theme. Superman's hidden identity adds a bittersweet tone to the end of this whole love scene. Later on in the film, we learn that Lex Luthor is hatching a plan to find Superman's weakness, and they kick off their efforts to hijack the aforementioned two nuclear missiles. Lex Luthor's troop of ne'er-do-wells still get no musical respect from Williams, 
as their antics are mostly played for comic relief and vaudeville-era villainy. But all of that is about to change as Luthor calls out to Superman, luring him down into his underground penthouse. This is Lex Luthor. Only one thing alive with less than four legs can hear this frequency, Superman, and that's you. In approximately five minutes, a poison gas pellet containing propane lithium compound will be released through thousands of air ducts in the city, effectively annihilating half the population of Metropolis. First, a high-pitched synth effect taken over by the orchestra with ominous low chords. It's shocking to us how easily Luthor can get to Superman. We have purposely been misled here. Lex Luthor can be dangerous. Superman wastes no time in answering Luthor's call, this time jumping out of the Daily Planet window and flying away. As he does, Williams gives us the Superman fanfare again, but as it plays, it's modified at one point. Instead of going up to the octave, it plays the Americana Feel Good Major 7th. Compared to the evil of the Lex Luthors in the world, the goodness of Superman flies in high relief. Listen to it right here. After verbally sparring with Luthor, we learn the details of his real estate plan to use nuclear missiles to send California into the ocean. A huge problem on a human level, as millions will be killed but also on a personal level for Superman, as Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen are on the West Coast on assignment for the Daily Planet. But before Superman can stop Luthor, he falls for a trick. Luthor has armed himself with kryptonite and tricks Superman into opening a lead chest. Immediately, the mortal threat to Superman is audible as the crystal motif part of Krypton appears in William's score. Superman doesn't stand a chance, and he's weakened to the point of immobility. A female choir appears, drawing a parallel between the doom of Krypton at the top of the movie and the doom that Superman certainly now faces. As Luthor leaves the room, a modified version of the March of the Villains plays. It's at once comical, but more sinister and evil in the low strings. We have totally underestimated Lex Luthor. Is this the end of Superman? No. Fortunately, Superman is saved by Miss Tessmacher and flies up to stop the missiles. Keeping his promise to her, he goes after the one headed for New Jersey first, which would have killed Miss Tessmacher's mother. Throughout the next several sequences, the Superman fanfare is heard over and over and over again, in almost countless permutations. And every time we cut to Lois Lane driving along somewhere in the desert of the West Coast, we hear the love theme. 
And then as we spot Jimmy Olsen at the Hoover Dam, we hear the fanfare intercut with this love theme. We know what's at stake and what has to be done now as the themes tell the story by intertwining. Superman has to save Lois and Jimmy and the entire West Coast. The stage is set. Considering that he has to stop the East Coast missile first, can he do it all in time? A little source music here. Give a little bit of my life for you. A nice tongue-in-cheek lyric there from Super Tramps. Give a little bit from 1977. While Superman has successfully stopped one missile, the West Coast missile detonates. As chaos ensues on the ground, the music disappears. The Golden Gate Bridge is collapsing. A train is going to derail. Meanwhile, Superman flies into the middle of the San Andreas Fault to repair it, all with no music. But finally, when Superman shows up to save the day in San Francisco, we hear minor variations on the fanfare at first. until the fanfare states itself confidently. Okay, kids, it's all right now. Hey, it's Superman. Then he saves the train. Same thing, but this time with train motion. And now the fanfare is in the brass. But oh no, the Hoover Dam. A low, ominous brass note, and the music disappears again. More sound effect chaos as the dam breaks. But when Superman shows up and saves Jimmy, we hear a rhythmic play on a pseudo Dies Irae. Safe here, son. Until Jimmy is safe. But then, he has to save the town from the rushing waters released by the dam. As he does, we hear a bit of the B theme from the march. Superman is unaware that Lois Lane is trapped in her car, slowly being buried alive. And while he's saving the day in one spot, he realizes, via the love theme, that Lois is suffocating, and he immediately rushes to find her.
Superman arrives at the scene, he sees Lois, not moving, trapped inside the car. He rips the door off, and as he pulls her from the car, we hear a gentle version of the love theme. Interrupted by a terrible realization. As he holds her lifeless body in his arms, we hear the love theme again. He gently sets her down on the ground. Kisses her. And the love theme fades away with synth arpeggios into an agonizing silence. Lois Lane has died. The soundtrack show will continue in a moment. We return now to the soundtrack show. We should never, ever dare to think of Christopher Reeve as just a good-looking guy with an all-American feel-good smile and a Superman suit. Oh, no. This is a classically trained Juilliard theater actor with chops. If there was ever any doubt, we should listen to his agony here upon realizing that Lois Lane has died. Not even a tiny shred of self-conscious energy. A fully committed, totally honest breakdown. And now Superman shows us power beyond imagination as he attempts to save Lois Lane. I mentioned earlier that there was a deleted scene where Jor-El was counseling his son, and this scene is a nice bookending reappearance of Jor-El, giving a warning about how it is forbidden to interfere with human history. As we start this sequence, John Williams reharmonizes the fanfare to give it an unsettling lack of resolution. Before giving us a floating version of the Krypton theme, making its first appearance since the creation of the Fortress of Solitude. But after the warning is given by Jarrell, it is ignored, and Williams punctuates this with a quick fanfare burst. And now he starts on screen storytelling with the orchestra as the brass descends chromatically in half steps to depict the spinning world slowing down. The orchestra gets quiet now, making room for sound effects in the mix. And as Superman's plan works and the world starts to spin backwards, the love theme emerges over Superman's agonized super speed. 
as if to remind us that it is a passionate love that drives him to do this. Then it stops again with more chromaticism, as Superman reverses direction to right the Earth's rotation, setting things back to normal. Williams plays up awe and wonder here, before breaking into another brief phrase of the love theme. The cue ends with Superman seeing Lois Lane alive and well in her car, and we hear the fanfare stated gently. In the next and final scene, Superman delivers Lex Luthor to a prison yard, and we hear descending music as he lands. Once again, the Superman fanfare plays as Lex Luthor delivers his speech of defeat. As Superman flies away, we hear the rhythmic ostinato making a reprise from the opening titles, sweeping us into the closing credits. feel-good Superman march, stated fully for only the third time in the whole movie. We're given a burst of energy as we rise out of our seats, having been treated to a feel-good story over the last two hours, set to some of the most memorable movie music of all time. close with an interview excerpt from John Williams. As many of you know, Richard Donner and John Williams had a wonderful time collaborating on Superman. But what we may not know is what good friends Christopher Reeve and John Williams became through this creative process. Tragically, Christopher Reeve suffered a terrible horse riding accident in 1995 that left him fully paralyzed, and he passed away less than a decade later in 2004. Here is John Williams recounting his friendship with Christopher Reeve and his ongoing love for his adventures with Superman. Quote, I have a particularly warm, even loving feeling for Superman, the first one, 
and I had that from the first day of meeting Dick Donner and Chris Reeve. Christopher was very young at the time, and their energies taken together, they were magic together. Off the set, just having lunch, having dinner, playing around with the script, and certainly on the shooting. Even as late as our recording sessions for Superman, Chris Reeve was always there. He always came. He was kind of a fan. He would sit next to the podium, or sit in the recording room, and came, I think, not to every recording session, but very nearly all of them. And also, later films that I did, Chris would come around, sometimes even unannounced, and just sit and enjoy listening to the orchestra. For all of us who have been through this unhappiness with Chris and his family, he really was and is the greatest guy imaginable. Everybody felt that when we were just beginning the film, I don't know how old he was, but he was like a kid. He seemed to me he was in his early 20s maybe when he did this. He was a lot younger than I was and Dick Donner and others working on it. And every one of us had a sense always of some very important future that this young man was going to have. Somewhere in the middle 80s, I went to Blair House, which is the house of the vice president, then occupied by George H.W. Bush. And once or twice in the summer months, Blair House was the site of where the medals for the competition for the Special Olympics were given each year. The disabled athletes, or athletes with disability, children most of them, would do their running and performances and so on. We had a nation-winning high school or university band there, and I conducted the music from Superman. Chris Reeve, then in glorious good full health, having been Superman, presented the medals to these disabled athletes. And certainly no one ever predicted these unhappy things that followed in Chris's life. But one always could feel that there was something about Chris Reeve that was bigger than an actor, and bigger than Superman, and bigger than his role in the entertainment business. Some larger human mission. I thought, and others did also, that he would end up in public service in some way, in politics to use a popular word. But he had the ability and the intellect and the charisma and the drive to help people, all in the real goodness, so to speak, that one could sense from him in his role as Superman. That was there, in him, and it came out in the powerful way that it did. So Superman was special, always, from the very first moments of working on the film with Richard Donner and Chris Reeve, and continues to me to be in my whole experience. Thank you all so much for all of your comments and emails. I read every single one. Please follow us on social media on Facebook or Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at David W. Collins. Or please send us an email at Soundtrack Show Podcast at gmail.com. That's Soundtrack Show Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.